Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Indie rock band Three Mile Pilot formed in San Diego in 1991. Their 1997 record, Another Desert, Another Sea, is a masterpiece, though it didn't reach a significant audience. The entire process of recording and releasing the album was plagued with stalls and label issues that ultimately soured the members of the group, causing them to break up. In the wake of Three Mile Pilot, two new, much more popular bands were formed, Pinback and the Blackheart Procession. Today we talk to Paul Jenkins, singer for Three Mile Pilot and the Blackheart Procession. In this interview, we learned that even Paul has a connection to ska. Of my Desert Island albums, Three Mile Pilots, Another Desert, Another Sea is definitely at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've written out my favorite albums list so many times, and that one sits at the top still. Yeah, same for me too. And I'm going to give a very loose ska connection to the record. Uh, I listened to that record all the time while I was living at Mike Park's house. I wonder what Mike Park think, thought of that. Uh, he used to make fun of me all the time and said I was a sad boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sad bastard music, for sure. Yeah. But I say that in the nicest way possible. Oh, yeah. The album still holds up. Brilliant record. And uh, and then after uh, Through My Own Pilot, Paul went on to do the Black Heart Possession, and that music still holds up, too. It's really good. Yeah, Black Heart Procession put out some great records. So if you have not checked out Three Mile Pilot or Black Heart Procession, pause this podcast, check those records out, and then come back and listen to us talk with Paul Jenkins. I'd love to start by talking about your song on uh, the, the Satanic Puppeteer Orchestra record, Have an Existential Crisis. You, were, you sang on the song Reboot the Simulation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was asked to do that. And uh, it was super cool because, uh, you know, that whole concept that he's doing is super wild and really resonates with me as far as like doing cool packaging and project based things that you're kind of have a skeleton vision for. Yeah. And you're kind of applying the creativity to that thing. Um. 
rather than just having a blank page, he seems to like have this whole concept worked out, <laughs> which is really cool to just be like, here, do a song and here's the whole gist. And it's like, oh, cool, let's do it. And the music was really cool, kind of dubby, ska, well, more reggae-ish. Kind of hypnotic. It's got that hypnotic vibe, which I think actually um, really works. I thought your voice worked well in that song. I haven't I really heard you do any like reggae or rock steady, but like hearing your voice in that context, I was like, this sounds great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm crazy, but I've always thought I was in a ska band this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> You're not in a ska band. <laughs> Black Heart to me has had elements of that to me, little moments of dub Mm-hmm. If you hear the right moments and think about it that way, it's a, it does come through in my music in certain ways. Same with uh, Thermo Pilot. You know, those guys were in a reggae band a long time ago together. Zach and Tom had a reggae band when they were young. Wow. What was the reggae band called? I, I think it was, was it really <laughs> something like White Tiger or something. <laughs> White Tiger. White Lion. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, White Lion, I think. That would make, yeah, I don't know. Um, and then, you know, the police were big on Three Mile Pilot back when, you know, those Zach was and Tom were both really into the police. I like the police, but they were big police fans. So that that has that in there. That's not like true ska or reggae. Or nah, but it's, it, the elements are there. Sure. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> The Satanic Puppeteer Orchestra, Michael, uh, that's his project. Um, are, are you friends with him? How did that come together? Well, you know, I wouldn't say we're, we're, we're friends now. <laughs> um, he came over the other day and we had lunch together. It was great. We've met a few other times over the course of the years. Um, and then he contacted me about this. Um, but our uh, friendship is blooming right now. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. But a really great guy. What a nice guy. And um, yeah, creative person. I'll just say this for people. One of the concepts about this record is that every song is sung by a robot, but it's also sung by a person. And if you, if you get the vinyl, you, depending on where you happen to place the needle, you'll get the robot version or the human <laughs> version. <laughs> so you never know what you're going to get. Exactly. It's so cool. I, it, the, and the artwork is really great on the packaging, all the cool things that all the there's like these stickers you get that you decide how to promote it. So there he gave the you know, I own a little record shop. He gave the record shop a sheet of stickers that are hype stickers. And I get to pick, put them on the plastic wrap and decide like what sort of thing I want to hype. <laughs> <laughs> what type of things do the stickers say? Oh, it said featuring Paul Jenkins or featuring the other artists or like, you know, I can't remember now. I'd have to look at the sheet. It yeah. had a bunch of little of those hype stickers all over the place. I, I figure I'm going to stick them all on there. <laughs> <laughs> I like the maximal approach. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Or give it with the first, give the sheet with like the first person to buy one or something cool. Yeah. Because it's a collector's. It's part of the packaging. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So what is your record store called? It's called Shop Soet. If you're looking online, it's S H O P S O E T. Shop Soet. 
It's in San Diego, right? Uh-huh, on 4th and Robinson. It's a little record shop, but we also sell knives, clothing, um, some home decor stuff. I do turntables and slight repairs, needles and cartridges. But really, our biggest thing is uh, pocket knives and uh, folding knives, like uh, Bali Song flipping knives. That's the right. biggest uh that's the thing that keeps us going. It's my, it's a big hobby of mine as well. So next time I'm in San Diego, if I need some knives, I, I have just a place to go. Yeah. I can get all into that in a bit. I'm <laughs> <laughs> here. So I don't want to jump the gun with too much information, but we can, <laughs> we'll definitely be circling back around to the knives because I can talk about them a lot. Yeah. Um, I will say this cause, uh, I, I, I saw you post about knives a couple of years ago. Uh, being really into knives and like the weird thing, the weird thing timing wise about it was that mountain goats had just released an album called getting into knives. Yes. And then I saw your, your post talking about knives. And I'm like, what is going on with knives? <laughs> that was purely <laughs> coincidental. And I saw that I, I thought the same damn thing. They're not, I don't <laughs> think they're really into knives. I think some reason they had a, the title getting into, I've never talked to them about it, but um you know, the cover has a bunch of different knives on it and they're more yeah. like ancient knives or, or I don't know about ancient, but they're like different kinds of knives. Yeah. I mean, I like all kinds of knives myself. I have quite a collection of knives that is beyond normal. <laughs> <laughs> what, so what is it about knives that you like? Mm, well, I think I got into knives. Kind of when I was a kid, I always had a pocket knife. My dad always had pocket knives. And I was really into like throwing knives into cardboard boxes and breaking windows. I I literally broke, missed the box and broke one of our windows in our house. Well, it was a window to this slot machine thing called a pachinko machine. And I broke the glass out of it, essentially. And I would always make spears as a kid. So, But fast forward through all that, you know, I kind of had this like for them. And I always kept a little pocket knife around, always carried knives with me. I had a little small collection of them kind of for a long time. And then at some point I needed a new pocket knife and I bought a pocket knife and it was really bad. It was just before the pandemic or so, um, about a year before I bought a pocket knife and it was crap. And I was like, Oh, I guess you got to spend a couple hundred dollars to get a good knife. And I was using it mostly because I do woodwork and working on things, tearing down cardboard boxes, just a pocket knife. And then so I bought a $200 pocket knife with what is called a Benchmade 940. And I also bought a second one called a Spyderco Paramilitary 2. And these are two really great pocket knives that cost a couple hundred dollars, um, but are really good. And it kind of just struck this little chord in me. And I collect, suddenly I was collecting another one and another one. I had a collection of like 10 pocket knives and then the pandemic hit and, uh, I started, I was already watching a lot of knife reviews on YouTube and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I just was like, Oh, I should do my own as a joke. I'm here at home with not much to do. So I put the camera above me and just had my hands in there and filmed myself doing a joke, fake knife review. But I cracked a beer. I put on a record. Um, all my first knife reviews are also album reviews. So I would do an album review of just a record I was listening to, like, and I would crack a beer and I would talk about the beer, the record, and the knife and the band. 
and they would be excruciatingly long, like some were like 20 minutes, 40 minutes, really long <laughs> knife reviews. And I got a lot of hate comments, not hate, like, but like they just, people were like, dude, you're taking way too long. This is supposed to be a knife review. And I'm like, Man, this is McDonald's. I want, this is a sit down show. And I w- it would just be my hands showing the record, talking. And people were, I had a small, gathered a small group of people that really started liking it. And liking my method of just chilling out and having a little knife review and talk. I would talk about the steel, the way it was made, who made it, all real information. But then I would joke around a lot, drink a beer, you know, but it was all dedicated more towards the knife. And then at some point I got what is called a Bali song, which we know is a butterfly knife. And I did a review. I wanted, I started wanting to collect every type of knife there was, every deployment method, every closing mechanism, locking mechanism. Um, just got into like having kind of one of each kind of style of knives because there's a lot of different front flipper, back flipper, you know, axis lock, liner lock, you know, different blade steels, different things. So I started collecting more and more. And I got to a Bali song, Butterfly Knife, and I, bought one. And I started having all these comments from younger, well, younger and older, but a lot of more of the younger audience. Hey, try this trick, try that trick, you know, do this, do that. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And then I realized there was this whole demographic of kids and young adults and older adults such as myself that were really into knife tricks and flipping And it was very current and modern, especially like a lot of skaters are into it. A lot of people who are into kendama, flow arts. There's a whole subculture of people. There's competitions. And now I'm a judge for one. I'm making my own knife as well. It's uh, I've just released it with a whole soundtrack. And so, yeah, there's a huge story I could get into that would take a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I started this knife reviews and now I'm prime I'm doing all kinds of knife reviews, but it's primarily fueled towards um and the shop as well sells a lot of Bali Song butterfly knives and it's about trick knives. They're very modern current makers, young makers, and I sell for the, a lot of them and we have meetups here in San Diego, competitions, I travel places for these conventions and meetups. And there's prize, you know, like there's, and if you saw the tricks people are doing, it's next level. They put music in the background of it. Like, so whatever the person wants to flip to, they flip to, they call it knife flipping. Um, and it's uh, a full on art and it's really geeky and nerdy. And a lot of my friends think I'm nuts, but when you get into this world, it's super fun and a really great group of people that I would never have ever met otherwise. How how safe is it to to flip around uh, knives? Oh, I get cut a lot, but I got a cut a lot more in the beginning. You got to pay to play, so you put time into it. You get good, just like when you see a skater fall and you they don't they just pop right back up because they know how to fall. It's the same thing with using a knife and stuff. You kind of know when to let go or to ease up. Or you always know where that blade is at. You get very, very comfortable. It's not something you learn quick. I've been now flipping seriously for about three years. And I do things that make people nervous and all that stuff. But I really, you know, I've gotten, maybe should have gotten stitches a couple times. But really, really you can get hurt a lot worse on a skateboard. And it's really not that dangerous. 
And the people that are into this are not like people think like uh, either Hicks or Knife Guys, they think, or gang-related thing. It's completely not either of those things. They're more like video game nerd people. Yeah. Because they're they actually put Bali songs as a a tool in your tool pack or whatever in some video games, and then a lot of younger kids wanted to use it. You know, like Squid Industries is out of which is a company is out of San Jose, and they have like forty five employees, and they have a whole team of flippers. So it's like a skateboarding team, and they like travel around and do all the promo, and they're like next level, like amazing flippers. Um, so there, yeah, there's a whole modern side to this that come and then there's a lot of it's worldwide because there's a lot of really good flippers in china japan all throughout europe um yeah all over the place pretty much and nowadays (laughs) guarantee most every school there's a young kid that has one of these because that's how popular it's become it's become this new thing that because they make a plastic one that's tsa approved and it's very kid friendly, but functions really good. And so the young kids can like learn this so quick and are really good. Well, also one thing I was wondering about with the the soundtrack you were talking about that goes with the, the knife that you're selling, is there, so is there a percussive element to flipping the knife or did that get incorporated in the soundtrack? Actually, it's not incorporated in the soundtrack. So mm-hmm. I, I guess like, do you want me to get into that and talk about the whole knife? I'm what I've been up to. I mean, sure. Yeah. I'd love to hear about it. Okay. So I obviously am a musician first. And as I've been on my journey with knives, I decided that I could probably figure out a way to make my own Bali song with the, because when you buy a Bali song, it's like when you collect them, there's a lot of different nuances. It's like collecting a skateboard deck or anything that you're using a lot that has different balances and weights and texture and preferences for each person that flips. So I designed my own. It's called the Zyzix. It's uh, made of titanium and S35V and steel, which is like a super steel. Well, it's not quite a super steel. It's almost a super steel. And then grade five titanium, like they would use on a space shuttle or whatever. It's really high-end materials and built very unique for competitive flipping. And so with, when I started this, I built all the wooden boxes myself. I designed the whole knife. I, the, the knife is machined by a guy in California named J- Julian Klein, who's a friend of mine. He has the CNC machines that do it. So he sends me all the parts. I do all the assembly, sharpening, finish work, uh, all this sort of stuff on it. But I also do the box, handmade wooden boxes and sheaths. There's t- a cleaning cloth and cleaning towel. They, it got kind of sort of considered one of the best knife unboxing boxing experiences as of late. There's a thing on YouTube under Will Hirsch that did a whole interview with me for Blade Show where I talk about it. And he, yeah, so there's a whole packaging that goes with it. And with this packaging is a soundtrack, digital download soundtrack card. And it's a seven song uh, EP, I guess you would say that talks about the whole knife. The Zyzix is named after a planet, uh, and a town in California and is a whole story about this planet and these two tribes that exist on the planet. And it's really a fantasy sci-fi adventure that 
talks about the knives and how they're used on this planet. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I listen to that. It's very interesting. Yeah. So yeah. And it's very different from my music. It's imagine like, yeah, if you heard it, I, I don't know. I keep saying it's like a kraut rock or craft work mixed with like a weird narrator over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's not, I only really sing in one of those songs, but it is all me, uh, except for on one song, my friend plays bass. So, um, yeah, so I made this whole packaging experience and sold out of all the first 50 and they sell for the base price is $975. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and the limited edition, which has like a artwork etching on the blade is like $1,250. So they range, they're really expensive. But what you're getting is this crazy packaging. And then uh, basically one of the best Bali songs, in my opinion, right now available for people. And uh, a lot of people are really vibing for it. And I'm making doing another 80 and it's all like handmade stuff. So it's very limited runs, very exclusive kind of stuff. How quick do they sell out? I sold the first 50 in three weeks or less than less than three weeks. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I sold, 50, I sold 17 in one day at Blade Show. And then the others were basically sold, all sold as well, except for like four. So they kind of all sold the first week. Um, I just didn't send them all out and sure for right away because there was a I was on a trip selling them at a trade show. Long story. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it's something I'm really obviously very passionate about. If you saw where I'm sitting right now, there's like a wall with like 50 different Bali song knives and my whole workstation for assembly. I'm sitting in my side room where it's half music and half knife making stuff. And if you go to my, if you, if people really want to get into what I'm doing, if they go to follow my Instagram, it's uh damn right i got knives <laughs> at d-r-i-g-k underscore which is damn right i got knives d-r-i-g-k and um you can see a lot of my instagram stuff there if you go to acid uh at acid works which is a-c-i-d-w-r-x acid works as well on instagram you can see a lot of stuff about my knife um, I'm all, you can also find them. They're all sold out, but you can see listings for them at our shop at shop. So at, and so the Bali songs I ship all over the world, you know, I'm selling, I've become a distributor for a lot of the more notable brands and their friends of mine. And we kind of all help each other out. It's like a whole community, a lot like the skateboarding community where you end up knowing a lot of the same people and working with them. So at our shop, we sell for probably, you know, 15 different brands or something. No, you were, were you, you were a skateboarder in the eighties, right? Mm. I could skate. I would skate ditches and I would have fun and uh, do longboarding and parking structures and any kind of fun with the skateboard I was into, but I wasn't as into it as some of my friends. I certainly wasn't sponsored or anything like that, Mm. but I definitely grew up in with skateboards as part of my life. Were you pretty, were you pretty into like punk rock and stuff like that when you were younger in the eighties? Yeah, that's where I grew up on, you know, uh, dead Kennedy's black flag, you know, um, bad brains, 
GBH, exploited DRI, corrosion conformity. I mean, Reagan's Youth, uh, Rights of Spring, all the DC stuff, you know, um, on Discord. Then it kind of went into like a lot of the touch and go stuff, which was a more odd side to punk rock. Um, and I loved all the sub pop stuff, which was more the grungy side of punk rock, I guess. There was so many good labels, SST, you know, Dinosaur Jr. and all that flavor, all the flavors of punk rock growing up I was into. And yeah, definitely grew up. That's where, you know, and and then even during the time of the crossover stuff with metal, like Metallica and some of those weird bands, I was really into Slayer when I was younger, uh, liked Celtic Frost a hell of a lot. Hellhammer, a lot of that stuff. Um, but then I also liked ska and reggae, like back, Black Yehudu I liked a lot. And, uh, you know, I had an appreciation for those things that kind of tied in a bit. And that's like, and that's why Bad Brains was so appealing as well, because they kind of crossed over into some other things. And then you had like the specials and st- stuff like that, where it was like, tying in to punk rock as well was really cool yeah were you watching like local bands and stuff were you were you connected to the local scene in that time i remember seeing donkey show remember them yeah i was going to ask you about donkey show yeah i i saw donkey show probably a few times they were great daddy long legs but that wasn't ska that was more funk but what other ska bands were there around there was a so the other san San diego ska band i'm aware of from that era was uh, Gangbusters. Oh yeah, I don't know about Gangbusters. Um, what was that other band that was kind of ska? See, so, yeah, like a little later, you get um, Unsteady and you get Bucko Nine in San Diego. Bucko Nine, that's right. Yeah, they were more like punk ska, like Rancid mm-hmm. or something, right? Yeah, they started in '91, so I'm not sure if you were. Did, I don't know if you ever saw them play in, in the 90s. I might have seen them play once, yeah. But by then, I was kind of on a different trajectory. I wasn't really into ska so much at that point, you know? Yeah. Um, but I always liked it, you know? I love it more now going back to it, you know? It, it brings you back to a certain place. And I'm really a big fan of a lot of dub and reggae and dance hall you know, I love all that stuff. I have quite a collection that I'm looking at across my room. I Yeah, you mentioned that you had some of your prized, prized records. So what are some of your prized records in your collection? All right, let me move this over here so you can still see me. <laughs> I'll dig through the little collection here. Is that good? Can you yes. Okay, this is why I was wearing my glasses. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, let me get to that section over here. Okay, so I love a lot of international as well, but I like a lot of dub and things like that. That I like a lot of music that doesn't have vocals because then I just picture my own thing. Mm-hmm. But I also like a lot of things that I can't always understand what the vocals are doing or what they're saying in a different language, stuff like that. But mm-hmm. like Prince Buster, I love his stuff. I have this blue beat ears. I don't know if you're into Prince Buster at all. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, love that. I have like several of his records and they're pretty like unique ones as well. Um, Prince Buster on tour. They're like bootleggy kind of things, like really great raw, super raw recordings on vinyl, the big five. Um, so I'm just, and then I got like uh, reggae dub love, which is an awesome compilation. 
uh, yeah, let's see. Let me move on here. Um, another dance hall, you know, the King Stitt. I don't know if you know his stuff. Dance Hall 63. This record's amazing. Um, uh, Creation. Do you know that one? Creation Rebel, the band Creation. They were more dub, reggae-ish. Um, Roots Radix. Seven yeah. inches yeah. of dub. 12 inches of dub, sorry. That's a great album. Dr. Alimentado. I don't know if you ever got into him. Rocksteady, um, Rare Sides. I love this stuff. Safe Travels with uh, um, Phil Pratt. Um, uh, Oris, uh, Horace Andy, he's amazing. Yeah, that's uh, the... Uh, oh, no, yeah. Horace Andy. Yeah, I love that stuff. I covered one of his songs once, sort of, in my own way. Just kind of took some of it and made it my own. Um, this is another dance hall record that's really good. Um, the Upsetters. I love Lee Scratch Perry. He's great. Mm-hmm. I have all the scientist stuff. Like, um, oh, I've soup the newest that Lee Scratch Perry, the Super Ape Returns to Conquer, is super amazing. It's from the newer stuff. I also like uh, uh, Dial M for Murder. Do you know that? In depth yeah. style. That's a great record. Um, Bob Marley. Um, another one of that. Derek Harriet. That's who I covered one of his. Oh yeah, what what Derek Harriet song did you cover? Let me find it here. It's I called it on. I started calling it for me. I was calling it. Um, let me think. Oh. The, Reach out to me, but I think I think he calls it. It's on this one over here where I passed. Oh, he calls it reach out too. I call it reach out. It's like I took a little vibe from that. I bet if I went and listened to it, it's nothing like mine. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say you covered it, what did you cover it? In what project did you cover it? Oh, solo. I just had this little thing and I liked how his verse was like, reach out to me. And I kind of just took that little bit and kind of went with it. He says something I can't understand. And I kind of made up my own little thing and um, bastardized it into my own kind of <laughs> live little dubby vibe moment in my solo set. Um, yeah, so the scientists, I have a lot of those. I can read you. I mean, uh, Augustus Pablo, I'm looking at that. Yeah. Um, more Upsetters, Chapter One, Super Ape, Return of the Super Ape. Um, okay, here's all the scientists. No, that's still the Upsetter. I love his cover of the BG song that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, Prince Jammy. Love him, Jimmy Cliff. This isn't so ska. This is, you know, getting into... Oh, here's all the scientists. Okay. The scientist collection. Then I have the, a super rare Mad Professor signed by him. Um, I'm going to hold all the... Because I feel like I'm finding these scientists. Oh, you know what? Skinhead Mood Stomp by... Sure. Yeah, you know that. That's a great record. I love how it's juxtaposed on the artwork 
when you see them on one side, it's like all these dudes in like suits and stuff. And then on the other side, it's like skinhead skinheads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I always liked that too, that people, it, I always thought it was really perplexing that there were like the whole thing where skinheads would like dress the way they did, but then not know how, why they did that in England and then how it translated to punk rock and racism and weirdness and the whole twisted history and misperception of youth and things. That's a really interesting phenomenon. If you think about it, did you come across a lot of uh, skinheads in the eighties in the San Diego? Oh yeah. All the shows and stuff. And they and so a skinhead in England was completely different than a skinhead in America is what I'm trying to say, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean some of them some of them knew the history right, some of them didn't. So exactly. You don't want to generalize. I think a lot of the American skinheads were bummed that there was any form of racism to it, you know. Especially mm-hmm. if you were in the music scene like and going to shows and stuff. It wasn't the thing at all. It's only when it got into like I don't know how it got to where it did. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, you know, Tapper Zuki. Do you like him at all? I'm not too familiar with him. Oh, check him out. Escape from Hell. It's one of the most weird record covers ever because it's like a skull on fire and it looks like it could be like a metal record, but it's all like really good dub. Tapper Zuki. Escape from Hell. So your your first band was a dark sarcasm, like a hardcore band. Yeah, we had a vibe of reggae and ska in there. Actually, now that you're bringing that up, we, oh really? Yeah, if you listen to the first seven inch we ever, or the only seven inch we ever did, there's definitely ska on that, and it's a song called Hollowlands. And there was another one that was kind of ska-ish. We were really into the Bad Brains and Slayer, so it was like <laughs> now we came up with this thing where we were doing like metal and reggae and scosh kind of thing. Um, Prince Farai is really good. HR, Bad Brains. Okay, so Scientist I have. Getting, I got all my scientists here. I have Scientist Wins the World Cup, which is a great record. Scientist Meets the Space Invaders. Scientist Heavyweight Dub Championship. Scientist versus Prince Jammy, the big showdown. And it's the best artwork on these records. Uh, Scientist rids the world of the evil curse of the vampire. (laughs) (laughs) And Scientist encounters (laughs) Pac-Man. Yeah, really great music. You know, it all sounds very similar and the nuances are very different. Like just you have to listen to the differences to find it. You know, it's dub. A lot of dub sounds very like in a zone of its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my collection over there. There's probably some I'm missing that are in my records that I play out sometimes. But yeah, that gives you a good gist of my appreciation. So um, I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about how uh, Three Mile Pilot came together. I was so I was reading you were in a band called Plum Daisy and that sort of led into the band. Is that correct? Yeah, Plum Daisy was our 
really horrible band. Well, no, we we had some good moments, but it was a band that we had right before Three Mile Pilot. And it was more funk, I would say. Like we had a funk element, but then we had this other element. And it got to this point where we didn't like that name and the lineup changed a little and we just wanted to focus more on the other stuff. We didn't like funk. I wasn't feeling very funky and I was like, I'm not, can we not do the funk stuff? And the other, the other Zach and Tom were like, yeah, that's cool. Let's not do it. And I'm like, great. Sounds good. Let's just avoid that stuff. And we switched up our name and somehow we came up with three mile pilot. I think they had suggested taco pilot. <laughs> said, Can we not do taco pilot? Give me a night to think about this. Yeah. I'm real glad you guys didn't land on taco pilot. Yeah. I came back to three mile pilot the next day and they were like, okay, what's it mean? I'm like, I'm not sure. I don't know. It just sounds better than taco pilot. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Definitely. Were you no guitar in the original version of Three Mile Pilot from the get-go? Or was there a guitar and then you dropped the guitar? And the guitar player was in Plum Daisy. And then, if I remember correctly, how it went down is we the guitar player left. You know, I don't, I don't remember exactly how it went down, but... I think uh, Zach and him had issues or something. And I kind of liked everything. I was fine with whatever. Um, and we didn't have a guitar player. And we tried out a few guitar players, but nobody kind of worked. It wasn't working with what we were doing because Zach is so busy on the bass and was. So we just ended up writing a bunch of songs and they all had no guitar and we just did the first and all of a sudden we had enough songs we were like we like them how they are let's go try record this and that was the first record i remember on the first record of through my pilot we didn't even really know that you could take second takes at something like i didn't know i could go in and sing a song and then erase part of it and do that part over <laughs> <laughs> like i was i just basically like got really stoned and went in the studio and sang <laughs> i mean probably pretty close to the truth. I mean, I had lyrics, I had my parts and stuff, but I didn't, I was like one takes, you know, go in one or two takes. You're not going to bounce around and spend hours. We were there one day, two days or something. And we recorded that record. And, um, uh, and then during that time of playing that record, I didn't like just standing there and singing. I wanted to kind of be busy with other things. Uh, and I was like, I kind of play guitar and we, they were still contemplating guitar and I had played some guitar when I was younger. And so I picked up the guitar and since I didn't play very good, I knew how to play very minimal and kind of listen to what Zach wanted to be honest. And I would just kind of play the supporting part to what he was going and then make some weird noises that I thought were cool. And, uh, slowly taught myself how to play guitar by being a guitar player for that band. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yes. those early guitar parts are not any, the magic is in the lack of knowing anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is so like the first album, like it's interesting to me how uh, much energy, how kind of much intensity you guys are able to create with um, the lack of guitar. 
Mm. Like Zach, and also I think, you know, there's other bass players that are, you know, like Les Claypool is probably one of the most famous bass players to, you know, sort of be so melodic and, and play it like, like a, not like a bass right. as tr- people traditionally think of. But I think, like, I listen to Zach playing and, and it's like, yeah, he's very busy and, and he's doing these melodic things, but it's also, there's a, like a lot of subtlety to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is really, really impressive, not just like his physical abilities, but his sort of composing. I've realized my curse in music is to always that I've always chosen to play with somebody so damn good. <laughs> I'll never be, I'll, you know, it leaves, it's the curse and the beauty. It leaves me pushing and learning from them. You know, I do something different for the bands that they don't do, but musically, like Zach was really good. He was so good. And it was like always trying to be like good enough to give him some support, you know? Um, And then with Blackheart, like Toby was so damn talented on the piano. My God, you know, I was playing guitar and writing a lot at that time, but he would be like, how about you move your finger there and it'll make it this diminished thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, cool. Yeah, that does sound better. You're right. (laughs) But yeah, Zach was very good bass, is a very good bass player. And when we were younger, it was like, we, it was definitely like, okay, Zach knows what he's doing here. So during that time, when you released that first record, were, were you part of a local scene? What, what, what were you guys involved with? Yeah, for sure. There was a lot of bands that were playing at like the Che Cafe or house parties or wherever throw shows were being thrown. Um, we would try and play with other local bands a lot and then bands that were coming through town like the early days of three mile pilot we played um with like uh i think we played with pitchfork one time but drive like jehu um night soil man and uh so many of the san diego bands from around here back then fluff and yeah um no knife boiler maker a minor forest um a lot of bands that came through the che we played with that were touring so we were definitely part of an underground kind of scene of bands that were playing around in town and that just kind of kept growing we really cut our teeth with a lot of those shows and trying to tour and seeing what it was like out there. What were those early um, three mile pilot tours like? Oh, not a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like we would go and play for very few people and we were on the other side of the country and we were just knew that that was a way to start something. It was a way to get out and, and be on the road. So you know, we didn't have proper booking agents. It, we didn't have cell phones at the time. It was like a pay phone calling the club, showing up, no contract with the Just they just told us we could come play and we, it was on our schedule. And we, you know, early days of Through Mobile was really learning and, and hating it and really getting um, turned off by and let down by certain things. And then to learning how to appreciate when it was good and what it took to to make it better definitely so the next record chief assassin to the sinister um 
has the guitar and really utilizes like the 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 volume you know it really has like a loud you know dynamic guitar um now kind of hearing what you said before how you were you kind of took up the guitar without like a ton of experience i can kind of see how you were that's kind of what you were you were bringing more and more of that that's kind of how i interpret it yeah i we were lucky in that i was lucky in that way because that was kind of accepted at that time to be mm-hmm. you know not perfect mm-hmm. and i was definitely the not perfect side to things i was the thing that brought screaming and anger and noise you know to things to what zach was doing i kind of was the juxtaposition to him and tom was kind of this rhythmic glue that kind of held us together um and that was my search to uh, what was happening was my search to learn how to play better you know really but also I was tied in, I was really about emotion and lyrics because I was a lyricist and a writer more before I was. So instruments and recording was always became a means to the end of like, you know, we need this to achieve that. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll pick up the guitar and I'll play it and I'll to sing these words and do this thing we're all doing together as a group. Um, and that kind of has extended always, you know, as I grew and started recording my own music and. I kind of play anything that makes noise and figure out how to play it. But I never perfectly know what I'm doing. And I've learned to appreciate that more. And now I strive to forget. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've always been curious about this part. So Geffen takes an interest in in you guys from that record specifically? Um, Yeah, I think at that time, I honestly got to say that they didn't know what they were doing with us you know they didn't know we didn't know what we were doing with them and they didn't know what they were doing with us there was just a hype thing going on in san diego at the time with uh grunge and major labels and we had a music conference here in san diego and we had a lot of boiling bands that were really good and we were putting on good shows and having a great time and they came and saw some of our show somehow they saw our shows and heard our stuff and realized that people were having a fun time down here doing this thing that, and so they decided to throw us against the wall and see if it would stick. And we were just kind of one of those casualties, I would say to that mentality. Um, Luckily we kind of came out of it stronger and learning from it. So yeah, they took an interest. They wanted us to, uh, well, we we got went up and finished a few songs and re-released Chief Assassin with uh, through Geffen, and then we were working on a proper record for Geffen, and we did a bunch of recording up in Seattle at Bear Creek Studios for a couple months and did a whole double album thing and um, turned it in, and they wanted to hear a more radio. There wasn't a song that was the hit or whatever they wanted to hear, so we went back into the studio and we wanted to try and work with Mark Trombino at that time. They wanted us to go in a different direction. There was kind of conflict with that. Um, We were trying some things. They were trying to kind of mold, you know, get in there and overproduce what we were doing. And we were very strong willed and hesitant. 
I think now at times, had we have been more relaxed and not so young and judgmental ourselves, it could have been just fine. Um, but at the time, it was very offensive to us that they would even dare mingle in our songwriting process, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're talking about another desert, another sea? Yes, exactly. They wanted us to add some songs to that. They wanted us to find a hit for that record. Now, I just want to, I will say, I'll interject and say that in this case, they were completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> because Another Desert, Another Sea is a perfect record and is a top, top five album for both Adam and I. Yeah. Oh, wow. Man. Amazing. I want to talk about that record because it is like a, when I, whenever I, I don't remember how I found it or, you know, I was friends were really into it, became completely obsessed with the record. Wait, before we get too into that record, though, I want to ask the the stuff that's on an old town we once knew. Where where did that come from? Okay, that's a mixture of what sort of what I'm talking about. It's good you brought that up because it'll it'll tie in. Songs from an old town is a bunch of B sides, seven all the seven inches we did because we did a shitload of seven inches mm-hmm. compilations, things like that. It was kind of pushing all that together and some outtakes of things we never used as well, and some of that was what we were kind of trying to do with Geffen at the time, a couple of things. And I really hate those tracks, desperately hate those tracks. Really? (laughs) On on songs, a couple of them on songs from an old town. Like I think it's Darlene and another one. I really just don't like those songs. It's through my pilot trying to force something poppy and it just doesn't work. And it never worked with our vibe and our voice. And I thought what we were doing was interesting enough I think I'm proud of Another Desert, Another Sea, and that's why it became that record. Mm-hmm. I think we all felt good about that. But yeah, some of the other directions we were pushing, we were, it, it's, you know, we weren't built for that. You know, we weren't, we didn't, we couldn't, we couldn't stomach it. You know, it wasn't, yeah, that's a mixture of that. I mean, there's, there's still some really incredible stuff on an old town. Yeah, I do. Think some of the odd stuff is really cool. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, let's see. I'm looking at this track listing now. I would say uh, Tripoli is good. Divine, this the divine crown, crown into the open sided. That's that's like a good one too. All those are the good ones. Yeah. There's a, most of it's good. It's just, there's a couple stinkers on there that we threw on to kind of document the bad moment there. And I even make a comment on it in the liner notes. Mm. So so do you know? Do you remember which songs those are? Yeah, I think it's called Darlene, maybe. Okay. Or maybe we named it something else. And I think there is, I don't know if Skydiver made it on there. There's a song called Skydiver. And no, I don't see either of those on here. Oh, maybe I never put them on. Maybe, or they came with a different name. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not on there. Maybe I just ultimately decided not to. Most of, like, I like the approach, that song on there, or uh, uh, The House is Lost is a really cool song on that yeah. record, I think. There's some good uh, J- that Jadulistan Requiem that we did with Jim French is amazing. On there, it's very uh, meditative. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also in this town I awaken. That's a great one. Oh yeah, that one we would play that live. I thought they ended up on that CD. A couple of stinkers from that session. <laughs> well, and then the other the other weird puzzle piece, the Gravity EP. Uh huh. Yeah, has the Brian Eno cover. 
Uh-huh. And then like the weird drum machine song. Uh-huh. <laughs> what how does that fit in? The weird <laughs> cuz that was that ended, that ended up being my introduction to Through My Pilot. That was the first thing you heard. That was the very first thing I heard and I was just like this is so weird. And then and then I got into uh Another Desert Another Sea. That's a hodgepodge of recordings. So, so we recorded Matt Anderson's a good friend of ours and he asked if he, we, we would do an EP with them and we recorded Tom and Zach and I I think uh, Tokyo uh, oh, um, Juan and maybe one of the others I can't remember the names of them I should look pull it up but um, with Matt Anderson and then we did Toby was going to be in that one's when Toby was trying out for Three Mile Pilot. And we just got Toby first into Three Mile Pilot. And him and I were both into Brian Eno. And so we decided to add that song to it. Mm-hmm. And then the Worry song, too, was recorded by Matt. But then what's the one that you stated the weird one weird recording uh on a ship to bangladesh isn't that the one that has the drum machine yes that one um that's zach's first time recording something okay uh, himself on a computer an old shitty computer and he recorded all that and we overdubbed on it we added that to the record so that those recordings came from like three different ways basically gotcha your cover of the Brian Eno song by this river. Um, I really like that track a lot because I, I like Brian, Eno. I like those, uh, those seventies Brian, Eno records, but he's like his, his approach to recording himself was like kind of like, like he's such a producer. He like has the layers of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. But your rendition of it is like so much more emotional. Yeah. And the, the way the piano feels on your version hmm. has like, I, I really I, I kind of like your version better is what I'm saying. I like it way better than the original version. Straight up. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of a real crossover record between Three Mile Pilot and Blackheart because mm-hmm. I think Toby only plays the keyboard on I don't think Zach's on that song, the Brian Eno cover. And I want to say he's maybe not on that song Worry either. Hmm. I don't know if you have the list uh instrument if it's set. I can't remember now what it says on there, but I know they're they're on the Tokyo Static, I think it is that what it's called? Is that on there? And Juan and the Synthy one you mentioned. On a ship to Bangladesh. Two of those songs came from just me and Toby. Yeah. One more me, Worry, and then Brian Eno was kinda like him playing I you know, worry I'm playing guitar. And did did you sing by this river or was that somebody else? Well, that's me. Yeah. Okay. It's just a little bit more subdued. Yeah. Yeah. So another desert, another sea. You you're on Geffen already because they already reissued um, a Chief Assassin. So you you're dealing with a like a like a real budget and a real studio and like a real period of time in a way you haven't before. Yeah, we finished the record and and. You know, we didn't understand major label radio. We didn't, that was all us learning again, learning a lesson in that. Um, so we were just like, this is our record, like it or not, either put it out or don't. And, you know, let us go or put it out. 
And they said, okay, you can go and have and have bet the record back since they defaulted on their contract. They decided not to sink any more money into us. We t- got the record back for free and all the recordings that we did back for free. And we put them out through cargo and kind of moved on. Yeah. Oh, we added three, three, I think, songs we did with Mark Germino. We went back and did what we wanted to do, which was adding Longest Day, um, The Year of No Light, and Ruin. Those, hmm. I think it was just those three we did with Mark Trombino to add to the record to make it a double record kind of thing. So the the album that you ended up releasing on Cargo was essentially, minus those three songs, essentially what you had submitted to Geffen? Yes, yeah, with Steve Fisk producing. So you, you basically made this record and then you had to go back and you had to try to write singles and do this and that. And then you had this whole long process and then ultimately you just ended up releasing the album you originally made. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're adding three songs, yeah. Yeah. I find it so insane to have a label tell you that there's not any hits on this album. <laughs> this, well, I kind of can agree. I, I don't know about that. I mean... I'm looking at the track list right now, like Way of the Ocean, amazing. Year of No Light, also catchy and weird. Kill the Racehorse, awesome. Uh, Ruin, another super catchy one. Eastern Wave, also super catchy. Uh, City of Bones, Glitter Wave, yeah. Longest Day. The the one-two punch also at the end of Longest Day into One False Eye. Like it's like the album says goodbye and then it says goodbye again. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> God damn. Like, I mean, I've listened to this album probably more than anything else. I'd say at this point. And wow. <laughs> sorry, sorry to like super fanboy out on you. Yeah. That's crazy. That's cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just wild to hear like somebody just be like, Oh, I don't think that there's anything here when it's like been such a big part of my life. I mean, I think for the time, our label mates were like the Counting Crows, and Kirk Cobain <laughs> just shot himself, and there was Guns N' Roses, and you know, I yeah. don't know if the climate was right for what we were doing. You know, you sure? Yeah, and that's okay. You know, I think it's kind of, I think it's. I'm not bitter about it, anything. I'm, I'm thankful that it means anything to anybody. And I, and I actually prefer it to be something unique than something overdone, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like those people that it like you, that it means something to is, is, is special. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get old hearing that people like it. And I, I also just saw that uh, it's been repressed for a, a 25th anniversary remaster. Yeah, Zach just repressed it under our his own or our own label. So mm-hmm. we did it all ourselves. I got together all the artwork and everything for him, and we redid all some of it's all the old images of the artwork, but just kind of reconfigured a little bit and a little few things added and rescanned in from the originals, stuff like that. So. Um, it was kind of cool to go back to it and kind of put it together pretty much the same, but a little different. I, I bought a second copy because I was just like, <laughs> it's my fa- it's one of my favorite records of all time. So I was like, I got to have the new version. 
Awesome. (laughs) You know what's funny, though? I think we should have done it a different color because I don't think I realized that back in the day we did it in red also. Oh, did you? I my, my copy is black. Oh, someone said they had a first pressing in red clear vinyl, and I'm like, huh. really? That's what we did the new one, and I wish we wouldn't have done it. Color. <laughs> I mean, what would you? What would you even have done? I mean, maybe a splatter or something. Yeah, yeah, anything, something different. But maybe he was wrong. Maybe it's not red. You know, I felt like there was. I thought it was. Well, uh, you know, I'm mixing things up now, so I don't, I don't know. I'd have to go back and find it. I have a black version. I don't know if I have a colored version. So to get into a little bit to the, the music, is there a pump organ on this record? Oh yeah. Yeah. An old pump organ that's at, uh, Bear Creek studios and, uh, and there's accordion. Tom played the accordion. There's pump organ. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That that pump organ just <laughs> sounds insane. It's so crazy in the studio. It's the most amazing sounding thing when you're in that room. It's a very valuable old organ, mm. um, and it's maintained really well. Like there's some, it came from some really special place, and I don't can't remember the story, but there's something very special about the organ, mm. and it just sounds incredible incredible in in the studio when you're playing it and then for doing like recording for these songs was it everybody playing together or was it layering tracks there was some of us playing all together Mm -hmm. and then there was a lot of layering tracks as well there was you know i think the foundation is tom and zach playing together Mm mm-hmm and then maybe I'd be there for the key moments, but I pretty much did. Or things like Kill the Racehorse, that was like all together a lot. I think things like that that are more movements. Mm-hmm. But then there is some stuff that I would do like a scratch guitar and we'd go back and overdub real guitar. Yeah. Tom and Zach would generally get theirs together. And then Zach would go back and overdub keyboards and parts. I would overdub guitars and vocals and weird noises yeah i was re- i was re-listening to the record before the interview and i was like paying close attention i was like way of the ocean is a good example like it really sounds like the basis of the song is um zach and the drums but it's it's kind of mixed down a little bit to normal and then there's all the other stuff like layered on top that's kind of a little bit more obvious to the first time you listen way of the ocean one of the one of the few songs that I bought brought in and I wrote actually. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And I had a real tough time at that time presenting new ideas, you know, because Zach had written a lot of the stuff. So me coming from going from playing not playing guitar to playing guitar to actually bringing in songs was a there was that was during those transition years of what you're talking about the gravity ep and another desert another sea like um yeah way of the ocean was one of the on that record might be the only song that i came in with the dun 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 and i had this way and i was singing the whole thing and then he kind of came in with the do 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 and yeah <laughs> his whole uh thing where it sounds like it's actually two guys playing but it's just yeah 
one one person playing. Well, yeah, that song came from me. Like it was, and I would play the keyboard part. I would play guitar and then play the keyboard part. Like way it's the way of the ocean. That was me on keyboard, and then I'd bounce back to the guitar, and I just had those two parts and kind of kept playing them until they relented and made up something that worked with it. So you just you just came in and presented it like I've got these parts. You, there was no demo or anything. Mm, we made a demo of that song in the begin after, but right. But no, you didn't come in with a demo. Is what I'm saying. No, no, yeah, no. I had just two, those two parts, and I kept singing them over and over. I just came. I don't even remember the day I ever came up with them. I just brought them in at some point, and we were playing them in the practice space. And I remember Zach not liking it at first and i was like just please just give it a chance play something over it and try and find i hear a song here Mm -hmm. and thankfully he did yeah definitely one of the other elements on the record that i really like are the kind of percussive vocal things that are happening Uh uh-huh how did you guys land on that a lot of times i think that was zach more like because i'd be singing and he would be looking for something to back me up where he would sing, you know, cha, ha, wa, cha, you know, and I'm singing the front thing. Um, so a lot of those times, and then it would be him, me hearing that going, okay, cool. I'll join you in that. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of those came from Zach thinking ryth- rhythmically or playing off of the drums or just wanting to be singing, but wanting to have a percussive vibe to it. Um, the O's, a lot of the O's would come from him as well mm-hmm. in the background, owing while I'd be singing, and then I would join him on it. So a lot of times that was Zach not having lyrics. He didn't have good lyrics. And I would say, try saying this, and it'll match with what I'm doing. That's rad. <laughs> I've wondered about that stuff for so long. Yeah, and then it was kind of me doing things like, oh, yeah, I'm talking about in kill the racehorse where I'm talking about the ocean and talking about things. I'm like, your ha sounds like people rowing a boat. What if it was really like rowing a boat? Yeah. Ah, 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 yeah, yeah. And that was why we had the creaky chair in there and the sounds of like, you're out on the ocean kind of rowing a boat, mm-hmm. man, those creaky bits. Yeah. So good. <laughs> like it's so weird they're just these like little subtle sounds in the recording and they evoke so much what's the process of recording a creaky chair you just put a mic that was creaking while he was playing he was sitting in a chair um that was creaking already and they were trying to like unmute like figure out a way to keep it quiet so that it could not be picked up on the mic but I kind of kept liking. I'm like, it sounds like the a mast on the boat and like the creaking of a boat when you're on the water. So we went around the studio and found the creakiest chair. And it was this wooden chair that was like on a spring, like an office chair. It was all wood. And if you moved it, it would go. <laughs> and like, one pushed it over under the microphone and literally like, I don't remember who did it, but one of us did it like playing it like, an instrument like creaking in the spots where we wanted it to creak. Oh man. So cool. I love that stuff. Yeah. Those were all put in there for sure. Uh, Was there any other, any, anything else you uh, added to the record? That's not a traditional instrument. 
Well, Jim French, the horn player, was on a lot of that, and he made all of his instruments. So he would have like a uh, like flute like thing that was made out of like a ostrich bone or something. You know, he would have all these. I defeathered a peacock and boiled it in water and I got these bones out of it. And I was like, Oh God, geez, really? All right. Um, he was a wild man and, and he did a lot of those weird horn sounds that you hear. And that's, that's Zach's father-in-law. Yeah. So he was kind of part of our family and he was definitely a wild, wild person. Uh, but he played horns with us until it became too unruly. He would like grab the microphone and start yelling at people. Um, I don't want to say too much, but yeah, he was, <laughs> he was very like opinionated about politics and he would start yelling about things like fuck Pete Wilson on the microphone while we're in the middle of our set. And we're like, Dude, this has nothing to do with that. What are you talking about? And then he, you know, yeah, it became like, okay, we have to go our own way. You're, He's he's an amazing jazz player though. He did a record with Diamanda Galaz. Mm-hmm. He has an amazing. He was friends with Pharaoh Sanders. He was a jazz musician, full on, and apparently very political. Yes, a very experimental <laughs> and political horn player. But yeah, he put a lot of sounds in there. I'm trying to think what else is on a lot of weird guitar sounds. I think I was experimenting a lot with foot pedals, a lot of guitar pedals and different kinds of guitars it was a very experimental time for us yeah i mean there's a lot of really cool just kind of ambient stuff running through the record like there's parts where it sounds like kind of like airplanes flying overhead things like that yeah that's that would be jim on his one he had this one horn that spun in a circle so while he was playing it it would go and spin in a circle when he was do it live you had to literally like duck <laughs> because it would be it would it was spinning and then sometimes it would literally fly off and smash across the stage because it was basically imagine a trumpet horn that could spin in a circle but it could like lift up off the like brass pipe that was holding it up there if he got it spinning the enough in the right way or the wrong angle and he was just he it was a sight to see it was really crazy looking because he would just stand up there and start spinning this horn in circles freaking nuts (laughs) (laughs) was was this only happening at shows in like the san diego area or did he head out on the road with you guys he came to a few shows he we did a west coast tour with him okay but yeah, again, people weren't at these shows. <laughs> um, people will say, it's one of those similar stories you hear where people will be like, oh, I was at that show at the off-ramp in Seattle. I'm like, really? You were one of four people there? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a quick story. Uh, I wasn't there for the show, but our, our friend AJ was at a show uh, seeing Three Mile Pilot and said that during Kill the Racehorse, the power went out but the band just kept going mm-hmm. and then it gets to the crescendo of the song and the power comes back on and everybody just lays right into the song, right at the, at the, you know, high point. Do you have any recollection of this? Was that potentially in a basement in Santa Cruz? Yes. I do remember that. I remember that the only thing 
the power cut out, all the lights went out, and the only thing that was going for some reason was Zach's piano. <laughs> what he said, I think it was something like that. His piano was the only thing, or or you could hear it percussively, like him playing it still. Yeah. And my and my guitar kind of doing its thing. All the amps went out, but we kind of kept playing and you could still kind of hear it. And we just kind of kept playing. And then, yeah, the power came back on, and I suppose it must have been pretty cool. I think <laughs> we just more relieved that we could continue playing the whole set. But I'm, I'm sure it was. We probably did it uh, with some August with the you know extra umph made it special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kicked back in and played a bunch more. <laughs> yeah, he's he's told me that story so many times. Just said it was the most. He's like it's the it was the most intense like live music experience I'd I have ever experienced. Yeah, I remember we used to have a great time in I mean we had good shows in certain places. Mm-hmm. That's the thing like Santa Cruz we had a great time at house shows there, Seattle, Portland, um San Francisco we played good shows. Um the West Coast, you know, yeah. but the moment we started moving out east Midwest. I mean, there would be, it'd be very hit or miss and most of the time miss. And then when we went to Europe together, it was, it was very, very miss, you know, like, no, we did a whole first European tour with very few people at all, every show, like just sound man and the bartender and couple of drunk people at the bar kind of thing. And we're playing in Germany for our first time. And we're like, this sucks. We really, <laughs> cut our teeth i was determined to go back and play better shows so that europe was always really important to me to go back to and as we built up um relationships and and friendships with people um the shows began to get better so the another desert another sea like quite different than uh chief assassin i'm curious about sort of the creative space you were in when you went to record it what if you had a vision when you started i think we were in in the middle of you know the whole major label thing so we were like just trying to make a really write really good songs that we liked and then we were trying to find a producer to work with there was different talks and we ended up with steve fisk even though honestly we all wanted to go with mark trimbino the label really wanted us to go with steve fisk and he wanted to record all of them first on demo and came down to San Diego. And there's actually eight tracks recording somewhere of all the air a dad, I should say recordings of all the songs done with Steve Fisk at our practice space at the time. And I've not met, maybe not all the songs, but some, most of the key songs mm-hmm. that record. And then we went up to, once we had the demos, we went up to Seattle for like two months and recorded with him and John Goodmanson and took a really long time in a very fancy studio out on a farm called Bear Creek where like Black Hole Sun was recorded or, you know, Soundgarden stuff and Foo Fighters and different people like that. Um, So we spent a long time up there. And I remember having lot of frustration to be honest at the time i was a very frustrated person smoked a lot of pot and drank and all that stuff but i was very frustrated at the process with the label i think it was maybe my own insecurities too mixed with youth and 
all that, to be honest. Um, but also when we would write as a band, I remember being so in the zone, feeling like we were doing something awesome and really in the band and really into our what we were trying to do. But the outside external forces around all of us, me, Tom, and Zach, were really heavy at that time trying to like navigate all that. Um, and also at the time when we were making that record is when Kurt Cobain killed himself, like I mentioned, mentioned earlier. And there was this whole grunge movement and like trying to put us in this grunge movement. And so there was a lot of odd, like feelings about it all and, um, pressure to make a record that was exceptional. Mm -hmm. the, where did the ocean theme come from for you? Oh, artistically speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I always wrote and I wrote about things that were on my mind, but I also dabbled in hallucinogenics and smoking a lot of weed and stuff like that. So I think writing just kind of came metaphors always arose and it was a former, I was writing before I was ever singing. And so writing lyrics to me have always been like, okay, well, that's what I'm bringing to the band is writing and singing. So I can't really say where it came from. My mother is a poet as well, and she's a painter. So I get a lot of that stuff from her. You know, it's one of those things that you don't know where it comes from. I can't remember where it really came from. You definitely create imagery and um, a feeling in your lyrics without it feeling clear necessarily exactly what you're talking about. Definitely never like, always wanted to be a little vague with my lyrics, not things out, leave room for imagination. It was like, words were like painting to me a bit. You're painting a picture, but, and, and lyrics can be like that. Poetry is like that. You're not writing a novel or a screenplay. You're kind of coloring something. And so a lot of lyrics were like that, just made to make you think. And, and if they meant something cool, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of my lyrics, you can find many meanings within them. You know, one line will be about something and then another line will be about something, but it's probably all going on in my life in some way. Often when I look back on them, I, I, it, I either will not know what the hell I was talking back or, about or think it was really cool because it's, I kind of can remember my feeling at the time more than what the song's about. The, the songs, particularly on this record, but I would say your songwriting in general, I get emotions from these songs, but I don't like, it's, it's, it's on such a weird subconscious level. It's, I'm not like quite understanding what it is you're talking about, but yet, there's like an emotion that comes through. Yeah, I, I think. And then some I do know, like, gists of what they're about, like, for sure. You know, if you read them, they kind of, you know, I could pick any of them and kind of tell you what it's sort of about. <laughs> All right. Give us, uh, give us the year of no light, which I think could have been your single had it been pushed, right? Okay, let me think about what that says now. Um well, yeah, so, you know, I stopped believing what's inside of me. Yeah. Um, 
a, a period of time of of having to find light in the darkness, you know, being, you know, feeling like this long journey to, to find, find the light and something that is a positive thing, I think is what it is. That song is about. So the, the, the chorus, I'll play the devil. You can be the light. Um, I'm curious your take on that because I, I kind of saw like you, like you, you were saying how like, the good and the bad or the dark and the light, they're like these things that we wear, like they're roles we play that you're not necessarily defined by them, but we like fall into these roles. Exactly. It is kind of true. Exactly that. Like, you know, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll be the devil and you can be the light. It's kind of like a kid's thought, like, you know, like, you know, whatever I'll be, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's kind of, saying it at the end there like you know it's kind of like saying we all go through these things sure yeah what was the uh decision to take the the chorus loop like the backing vocal and just drop it at the bottom of at the back of the album super quiet the all oh, play the devil yeah but you have to turn your stereo all up to hear it i think how we got that is we sped up the tape double time okay um that was a uh, recording trick we did, but it was to tape. So yeah. it wasn't actually sped up in like you would do a plug-in nowadays. It was done to tape yeah. and then dropped back in in place. And we always loved the way it sounded. I think it was because it was like a note that Zach couldn't hit. So they found out what note it was by speeding up the tape. Mm. And then we all decided to sing it. in a, I think it's me and him together decided to sing it in a lower pitch. And then they upped the speed to make it high and it just ended up this really weird sounding voice and we thought it was really creepy and we were like yeah let's put a chunk of that at the end <laughs> was it was it meant to be in a, in a lock groove because there's a there's a lock groove at the end of chief assassin yes yes chief assassin yeah chief assassin has a lock groove. yeah at the end of my copy that's just like bubbling there's like, oh the bubbles go on and on right yes yeah. of anderson guardian um, I think there is it a lock groove. I think on the, I think it is meant to be a lock groove because we were talking about it on this repress, mm -hmm. and I think the repress, I we would have to listen to see if either one of them have it, but it is definitely talked about with me and Zach on the more recent reissue. Ooh, nice. And I can't remember if he was pissed because it not pissed, but you know. Like, oh damn, we didn't do the lock the lock groove didn't happen at the end. And we I sure. think we might have like decided not to worry about it or it or he fixed it. And I'd have to go listen to the record to tell you. Well, I'm excited to get my copy and and see see if it has it. <laughs> I remember the conversation for sure. So that's supposed to be a lock groove. You are correct. Nice. It might just be a manufacturing flaw then. Yeah. Uh longest day, she said, I'm the one who painted out the stars in the sky. Great line. Yeah, I don't know if that's about anyone specifically or who she is at the time. It might be some something like that, but I think it was more of like imagery of like uh, somebody saying you're always so negative, you know, or I ruin you ruined something or something wasn't you know kind of gonna work. The closing song, "One False Eye," which is like I, it's such a powerful song. But then the end, it just says one day he will return. Uh huh. 
is there is there any does that do you have any memory about why you said that at the end i think that song to me always had the feeling of real loneliness to me like of in a sense of like i always pictured a person who kind of a homeless person kind of like very alone walking through a very crowded place and nobody wants to touch him, you know, kind of vibe. Mm. Uh, in a biblical sense, like, you know, the way, and although I'm not religious in any sense of the way, the word, I'm actually, I don't subscribe to any sort of modern organized religion. But I, I think there's cool, good values and interesting stories and all that within there. Um, the way, you know, Jesus or, you know, could be with the diseased and, and care for other people. So I think that was kind of the sentiment in that song. Like, um, I'd have to look at all the words, but I always felt that imagery I got with that is kind of a guy walking alone. And then... I think one day he will return to me as like, you know, that's not, that's the story everybody else sees him as. Maybe in his mind, as he's walking around, he's actually a king, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so to him, he's, you know, you know, or maybe in another life or something like that, you know? When when I was listening to this album for the first times, the Three Mile Pilot was not a functioning band anymore, uh -huh. and so when it would get to this part of the album, I would always take it as like you singing about yourself. Like one day we'll we'll return to this. So oh, I always yeah. felt like when you, when you guys came back and started playing shows again, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I was like, it was like the the you know answer of that promise. I think a lot of times, you know, maybe people will think I'm talking about myself, but sometimes I'm just talking about a fictional character. But I think anytime you write anything, you, it's a reflection of you and your thoughts. So, you know, I think there's no matter what you do, it's, it's a part of you. Yeah. And that's kind of the cool thing. And, and something I enjoy in writing is mystery, you know, mm -hmm. just like uh, I'm getting into this whole thing, you know, with, the knives and the story and the soundtrack. It's a, it's a whole sci-fi planet world, you know, um, you know, so it's, it's fun to build on that whole thing. There's uh, a peep, this group of people that found a chest filled with knives in the desert. And they asked if I, would take a look at them. But the how they found these was in the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. They found in Lazarus' tomb a map that was written on the wall from back in that time. And it was to a place out here in America in the desert and they found these knives in a chest. And in the chest, there were these scriptures and blueprints and diagrams to these old ancient knives. 
and there were also some knives in this thing. And these materials would that date back to the time that Lazarus was buried. Um, and I got the opportunity to see some of them. And they're made of materials that are were not used at that time. And there's these hieroglyphics and markings on them that are just insane. And so it's going to be released pretty soon. And this, so I don't mind talking about it, but it's it's pretty wild, like what they found out there through the knives world. And that, it brought me into all the way from collecting knives to then now hel- helping some archaeological people that I know that found knives out in the desert and being made by materials that can't be explained. It's crazy. Hmm. Wow. So it was a couple months to record the record, but um, how long was the process of the label having you do new songs, re-record songs? Like what, what, how long did that process last before they finally said, forget it. You can just keep the record. Well, it's a, that's a funny story that I remember. Remember me, Zach and Tom were in LA and we were at a studio and we were with our producer at the time and another, and our A&R guy and probably an intern. And we were working on a song and Zach and Tom and I were sitting outside of the studio door at a pool in Beverly Hills outside of a studio. And I'm looking at him and they're looking at me and, we're listening to the music come out the door. And I just said, I don't like this stuff. And Zach was like, I don't like it either. Tom's like, I don't like it. And Tom's like, I kind of want to just go home right now. And I'm, Zach's like, I do too. And I said, sure, I'll go. So we grabbed our guitars, load them up in our truck. The engineer and the producer and the A&R guy all in there had no idea that we left and got on the freeway and went home. <laughs> <laughs> and they called us up the next day. Hey, where did you guys go? You guys just left. That's when we were like, yeah, we're kind of done. And the record is the one we turned in. And then Tony Berg, our A&R guy at the time, was like, let me play it for some of the others, see what they think, and we'll have an answer for you soon. And it was probably a few weeks later or something. They came back with, uh, you know, we're just going to let it go, and you guys can have the tapes, so on and so forth. How many songs do you think you recorded um, that, you know, the stuff that wasn't, didn't land on the record itself? The stuff that got abandoned. Yeah, it's probably like three or something like that. There's a bunch of stuff that Zach has, then we're going to be revisiting it. We're working on some more recordings, actually. Um, and he wants me to listen to some stuff that never got vocals on it back in the day and see what I think. And then there's a bunch of newer stuff that we've been working on as well. Newer as in the past three years or something um, that every now and then we get together and we're kind of trying to get motivated to start getting together again Mm -hmm. and maybe finish up some stuff that never got done and some new year stuff. Hell yeah. So the inevitable past is the future forgotten. That was all just brand new stuff. Yeah. That was when we kind of got back together. Yes. But we never broke up. We will always have been great friends. Right. The band just kind of fizzled, basically. Yeah, we just stopped. We, I wanted to tour more, and I started Blackheart by living with Toby, and I was writing a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of stuff, because Toby and I lived together, it kind of it didn't have that same 
sensibility as three mile pilot. I was kind of tired of, I wanted to write more in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I think Zach wanted, he wasn't so into touring at the time, but then he still wanted to play. And him and Rob started playing together and then Pinback, I think inevitably because their popularity, because people dug what they were doing so much, they ended up having to tour, you know, where I always kind of wanted to tour. Blackheart was like, as soon as we had a record, we went and toured Europe, you know? Right. Yeah. Pinback always was much more of just, it seemed like a recording project. And then, yeah. and then it got so popular that, touring was kind of demanded by it yeah exactly yeah and i i got really into like non-pop structure things you know i really didn't want i didn't i got really like i don't care about any sort of convention you know with, with Blackheart, it was just doing whatever felt good yeah long songs sometimes sometimes yeah and sometimes real short too you know i really appreciate a good short song nowadays I just, I also, I'd always wanted you to do this, and I saw that it had just, it, it's been done. The, you took all the waiters' tracks and put them on one release. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always had been like, man, I wish I could just listen to these all back to back because they all kind of tell a story, right? Yeah, they do tell a story. Again, an imaginative story, but yeah, it's about a guy kind of waiting for his lab and freezes out in the in the um out in a cabin in the snow waiting but then he has to then he dies and she comes back and then he's uh haunt and then, uh oh he's haunted by her she dies and she he's haunted by her out in this cabin then he dies and he's still haunted by her and his death and i don't know some sort of, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know i really don't know i'd, I'd have to go back through it again oh yeah he thaws that's right he thaws out out there it's kind of like metaphors a lot of metaphors again yeah so when when uh another another desert was actually released you guys didn't really tour much to promote it you kind of that you, you sort of were fizzling as it was released right yeah i would say so yeah we tried to we did one european tour but then it was kind of Zach and Tom suddenly didn't want to go and I was releasing the Blackheart first Blackheart record. So we kind of went as half Blackheart, half three mile pilot. Oh, and the first tour over there was, we were playing some Blackheart songs and some three mile pilot songs, but without Zach and Tom and went under the name three mile pilot because (laughs) (laughs) we kind of did bamboozled, you know, we were like, all of a sudden we were selling some three mile pilot, but then we, played mostly Blackheart songs and sold Blackheart CDs at the table. So we kind of just snuck ourselves in on that tour yeah. because Zach and Tom just suddenly canceled their plane flight. And that's when I was like, fuck this and went full bore into Blackheart. I wasn't bitter at them. I was just like, you guys, like, you know, you guys don't want to do this stuff. Yeah. And then they didn't for a long time, but then eventually, you know, I was really busy with Blackheart. And they started doing stuff with Pinback, and then Three Mile Pilot never really broke up. We would we once again we were all always still friends. We never had fights or arguments really, uh, and so we would just still play every once in a while and get together when we could. Yeah, 
we saw I never got to see uh Three Mile Pilot during, you know, during the nineties, but yeah, Adam and I both saw you at uh, Catalyst. Um what what year was that, Adam? Roughly? Twenty ten, twenty eleven? Yeah. The Catalyst and uh wait, that's in uh, Santa, Santa Cruz. Cruz. Oh, weird. How was that show? Great. It was, yeah, it was great. I yeah. came I came the next night too and saw you guys in like Merced or some oh, okay. some weird backward backwoods place that <laughs> I was like, Through my pilots playing here, okay. Wasn't it a bar? Yeah. Yeah. And then the catalyst was in the side room, smaller room, right? Yep. Yeah, the atrium. Yes. Yeah, I think I remember Zach drank a little that night, if I remember. Was he a little he had like a couple drink he normally is not a drinker and I think he had a few couple shots right before we played. Did, did that affect his performance at all? I didn't, I don't remember anything. Oh, we had fun. He was laughing so hard. We were cracking up and he had a, good, <laughs> we had a fun time. I, I don't remember it being a bad thing. No. Just loosened him up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Zach's always hilarious. If he has a couple drinks, he just, he gets like super giddy and, uh, and it's funny to see him loosen up, you know? Yeah. Where Tom and I would have a couple drinks every night. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you one last thing before we end the the uh, episode, and that's um, you you uh, Blackheart Blackheart um had uh gotten Lee Scratch Perry to remix a song in 2010 called Freeze. Oh yeah, how did that come about? Did did, did you talk to him, or was it just like a management thing? I did one time talk to him, so. There became with Temporary Residence a period where they wanted to do a remix record, EP, and thought it would be a cool thing in between full-length records. And we were like, sure, yeah, let's see what we can do. So we gave a few songs like Album Leaf and a couple other people that did remixes. We did our own remixes as well under Mr. Tube. I, that was me remixing our own stuff. And then... um Jeremy from Temporary Residence said, you know, who would you, do you have any ideas? And I said, hey, man, if you could get Lee Scratch Perry to remix one of our songs, that would be amazing. Because uh, I'm a huge Lee Scratch Perry fan. And uh, he said, I'll see what I can do. And he contacted the manager of Lee, of, of Lee Scratch Perry. And they, I think it costs like fifteen or $2,500 to do it. 2500 bucks later, we pushed play we gave him stems to a song of ours so he could have all the different parts to mix from um the only thing he used from that song was like one bass note not a bass riff one bass note and the kick drum and it is the weirdest (laughs) fucking song it sounds nothing like our song at all at all it doesn't even make sense the song is not even dub it's like I was hoping for a really killer dub mix and it is like sure electric. Uh, you, do you, have you heard that track? Have you heard it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird track. Yeah. 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 I'm going to pick my mole. <laughs> That's not <laughs> my belly button. I don't know what he says. He says all this weird shit. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's like every time I hear it, I'm like, I like this so much because what the hell is going on? it cracks me up every time i hear it i really like it but yeah he and so uh he was coming to san diego and um i i went 
through his manager. I said, I'd really like to meet him and say thank you for doing the remix. Waited all night long after he played. You know, I was supposed to meet him before he played. I was like, okay, I'm going to meet him and then go home after I watch a couple songs. Now nah, he's too busy. Um, waited all night long. Oh, the manager's like, oh, just hold on, y'all. I'll, I'll let you meet him. I'll let you meet him. Uh, and, he, and he's comes out. Um, and I'm trying to remember what he said. I said, hey, um, this is Paul. He does the Black Heart Procession. You remix, remember that song you remixed a couple months ago? Uh, and he, who? Who? What? You know, kind of clueless. And he says, oh, yes. And then he said, what are you? Oh, man. it's on my Instagram what he said. I captured it and wrote it down, what he wrote, what he said to me. But it was very odd. I'd have to look at my Instagram. Here, I'll tell you what he said to me. Oh, yeah, he was going to bring me back. And I thought, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to uh, smoke a joint with Lee Scratch Perry. I was super. He said he was going to come backstage, but I never got backstage in the end. Never smoked a joint with Lee Scratch Perry. Um, uh, I, I was imagining being his best friend. And finally, the door opens, comes out Lee Scratch Perry and the manager, and they rock right past me. And I'm thinking, I'm not letting this moment pass mm, after waiting all night. So I get my get the manager's attention and they as they're headed out the door luckily they remembered and got lee's attention and said something about who i was lee looked at me and said something um said some uh said something i couldn't understand at all made some sort of strange sound while flipping up his hat up and down he then said something about a chicken dance song and walked away. <laughs> he just he was like, "Oh yeah," and he flips up his hat like this, and he says, "Oh, the chicken dance song." And I'm like, the, "I'm like, was it a chicken dance song?" I'm like, "I have no idea what the hell he's talking about." And that was me meeting Scra Lee Scratch Perry. So yeah, yeah, that's I think everything you'd want in meeting Lee Scratch Perry. Yeah, it was perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. It was awesome. Great memory. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigong, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. You going to get me a Christmas present, Aaron? Yeah, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, I'd like uh, one of Paul's uh, butterfly knives. Oh yeah, no problem at all. Let me just uh, let me go check online really quick to see how much that is. Okay, cool. Oh shit! <laughs> Straight up during the episode, I was I was googling them because I'm such a big fanboy. I was like, oh, I'd love one of those. I'm such a big fan. How how much could a knife possibly cost? Honestly, though, even at like the eleven hundred dollar price point, I considered it. I'm that big of a fan. 
How how cool was it that he spent another uh, half hour with us behind the curtain after that already fairly lengthy episode? It was super cool. I didn't I didn't want to get off the call with Paul. Um, yeah, and then yeah, we had a great talk behind the curtain. We stopped recording, and I, I, if I remember right, he stayed on past that too, mm-hmm. which I was I was overjoyed. So hey, check it out. Uh. It's Three Mile Pilot, year. Another Desert, Another Sea. One of my top, top Desert Island albums. You should listen to that record if you haven't already. And you should meet us behind the curtain to hear the rest of this conversation with Paul. Yes. And then let's talk about next week, shall we? What's we next week, Aaron? Quite an, quite an episode. Quite an episode? Quite an episode. Yes, right. quite an episode. It is a lay it on us. Stuart Copeland. Stuart Copeland Woo! from the police. Yeah. Can you little band it? called the police? Ever heard of them? Yeah. We yeah. got the drummer. Only the biggest band in the early to mid eighties. Yep. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.